The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Mary Woods Copyright 2008, loudlit.org Chapter 24 Conclusion After many days, when time sufficed for the people to arrange their thoughts in reference to the foregoing scene, there was more than one account of what had been witnessed on the scaffold. Most of the spectators testified to having seen, on the breast of the unhappy minister, a scarlet letter, the very semblance of that worn by Hester Prynne, imprinted in the flesh. As regarded its origin, there were various explanations, all of which must necessarily have been conjectural. Some affirmed that the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, on the very day when Hester Prynne first wore her ignominious badge, had begun a course of penance, which he afterwards, in so many futile methods, followed out by inflicting a hideous torture on himself. Others contended that the stigma had not been produced until a long time subsequent, when old Roger Chillingworth, being a potent necromancer, had caused it to appear through the agency of magic and poisonous drugs. Others again, and those best able to appreciate the minister's peculiar sensibility and the wonderful operation of his spirit upon the body, whispered their belief that the awful symbol was the effect of the ever-active tooth of remorse, gnawing from the inmost heart outwardly and at last manifesting heaven's dreadful judgment by the visible presence of the letter. The reader may choose among these theories. We have thrown all the light we could acquire upon the portent, and would gladly, now that it has done its office, erase its deep print out of our own brain, where long meditation has fixed it in very undesirable distinctness. It is singular, nevertheless, that certain persons who were spectators of the whole scene and professed never once to have removed their eyes from the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, denied that there was any mark whatever on his breast, more than on a newborn infant's. Neither by their report had his dying words acknowledged, nor even remotely implied, any, the slightest, connection on his part with the guilt for which Hester Prynne had so long worn the scarlet letter. According to these highly respectable witnesses, the minister, conscious that he was dying, conscious also that the reverence of the multitude placed him already among saints and angels, had desired by yielding up his breath in the arms of that fallen woman to express to the world how utterly nugatory is the choicest of man's own righteousness. After exhausting life in his efforts for mankind's spiritual good, he had made the manner of his death a parable, in order to impress on his admirers the mighty and mournful lesson that, in the view of infinite purity, we are sinners all alike. It was to teach them that the holiest amongst us has but attained so far above his fellows as to discern more clearly the mercy which looks down and repudiate more utterly the phantom of human merit, which would look aspiringly upward. Without disputing a truth so momentous, we must be allowed to consider this version of Mr. Dimsdale's story as only an instance of that stubborn fidelity with which a man's friends, and especially a clergyman's, will sometimes uphold his character when proofs, clear as the midday sunshine on the scarlet letter, establish him a false and sin-stained creature of the dust.
The authority which we have chiefly followed, a manuscript of old date, drawn up from the verbal testimony of individuals, some of whom had known Hester Prynne, while others had heard the tale from contemporary witnesses, fully confirms the view taken in the foregoing pages. Among many morals which press upon us from the poor minister's miserable experience, we put only this into a sentence. Be true, be true, be true. Show freely to the world, if not your worst, yet some trait whereby the worst may be inferred. Nothing was more remarkable than the change which took place almost immediately after Mr. Dimsdale's death in the appearance and demeanor of the old man known as Roger Chillingworth. All his strength and energy, all his vital and intellectual force, seemed at once to desert him, insomuch that he positively withered up, shriveled away, and almost vanished from mortal sight like an uprooted weed that lies wilting in the sun. This unhappy man had made the very principle of his life to consist in the pursuit and systematic exercise of revenge, and when, by its completest triumph and consummation, that evil principle was left with no further material to support it, when, in short, there was no more devil's work on earth for him to do, it only remained for the unhumanized mortal to betake himself whither his master would find him tasks enough, and pay him his wages duly. But to all these shadowy beings, so long our near acquaintances, as well Roger Chillingworth as his companions, we would fain be merciful. It is a curious subject of observation and inquiry whether hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom. Each, in its utmost development, supposes a high degree of intimacy and heart knowledge. Each renders one individual dependent for the food of his affections and spiritual life upon another. Each leaves the passionate lover, or the no less passionate hater, forlorn and desolate by the withdrawal of his subject. Philosophically considered, therefore, the two passions seem essentially the same, except that one happens to be seen in a celestial radiance and the other in a dusky and lurid glow. In the spiritual world, the old physician and the minister, mutual victims as they have been, may unawares have found their earthly stock of hatred and antipathy transmuted into golden love. Leaving this discussion apart, we have a matter of business to communicate to the reader. At old Roger Chillingworth's decease, which took place within the year, and by his last will and testament, of which Governor Bellingham and the Reverend Mr. Wilson were executors, he bequeathed a very considerable amount of property, both here and in England, to little Pearl, the daughter of Hester Prynne. So Pearl, the elf-child, the demon offspring, as some people up to that epoch persisted in considering her, became the richest heiress of her day in the new world. Not improbably, this circumstance wrought a very material change in the public estimation, and had the mother and child remained here, little Pearl at a marriageable period of life might have mingled her wild blood with the lineage of the devoutest Puritan among them all. But in no long time after the physician's death, the wearer of the scarlet letter disappeared, and Pearl along with her. 
For many years, though a vague report would now and then find its way across the sea, like a shapeless piece of driftwood tossed ashore with the initials of a name upon it, yet no tidings of them unquestionably authentic were received. The story of the Scarlet Letter grew into a legend. Its spell, however, was still potent, and kept the scaffold awful where the poor minister had died, and likewise the cottage by the seashore where Hester Prynne had dwelt. Near this latter spot one afternoon, some children were at play when they beheld a tall woman in a gray robe approaching the cottage door. In all those years it had never once been opened, but either she unlocked it, or the decaying wood and iron yielded to her hand, or she glided shadow-like through these impediments, and at all events went in. On the threshold she paused, turned partly round, for perchance the idea of entering alone and all so changed, the home of so intense a former life, was more dreary and desolate than even she could bear. But her hesitation was only for an instant, though long enough to display a scarlet letter on her breast. And Hester Prynne had returned, and taken up her long-forsaken shame. But where was little Pearl? If still alive, she must now have been in the flush and bloom of early womanhood. None knew, nor ever learned with the fullness of perfect certainty, whether the elf-child had gone thus untimely to a maiden grave, or whether her wild, rich nature had been softened and subdued and made capable of a woman's gentle happiness. But through the remainder of Hester's life— there were indications that the recluse of the Scarlet Letter was the object of love and interest with some inhabitant of another land. Letters came, with armorial seals upon them, though of bearings unknown to English heraldry. In the cottage there were articles of comfort and luxury, such as Hester never cared to use, but which only wealth could have purchased and affection have imagined for her. There were trifles, too, little ornaments, beautiful tokens of a continual remembrance that must have been wrought by delicate fingers at the impulse of a fond heart. And once Hester was seen embroidering a baby garment with such a lavish richness of golden fancy as would have raised a public tumult had any infant thus apparelled been shown to our sober-hued community. In fine, the gossips of that day believed, and Mr. Surveyor Pugh, who made investigations a century later, believed, and one of his recent successors in office, moreover, faithfully believes, that Pearl was not only alive, but married and happy and mindful of her mother, and that she would most joyfully have entertained that sad and lonely mother at her fireside. But there was a more real life for Hester Prynne here in New England— than in that unknown region where Pearl had found a home. Here had been her sin, here her sorrow, and here was yet to be her penitence. She had returned, therefore, and resumed, of her own free will, for not the sternest magistrate of that iron period would have imposed it, resumed the symbol of which we have related so dark a tale. Never afterwards did it quit her bosom, but in the lapse of the toilsome, thoughtful, and self-devoted years that made up Hester's life, the scarlet letter ceased to be a stigma which attracted the world's scorn and bitterness, and became a type of something to be sorrowed over, and looked upon with awe, yet with reverence, too. 
And as Hester Prynne had no selfish ends, nor lived in any measure for her own profit and enjoyment, people brought all their sorrows and perplexities and besought her counsel, as one who had herself gone through a mighty trouble. Women more especially, in the continually recurring trials of wounded, wasted, wronged, misplaced, or erring and sinful passion, or with the dreary burden of a heart unyielded, because unvalued and unsought, came to Hester's cottage, demanding why they were so wretched and what the remedy. Hester comforted and counseled them, as best she might. She assured them, too, of her firm belief that, at some brighter period, when the world should have grown ripe for it, in heaven's own time, a new truth would be revealed, in order to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a surer ground of mutual happiness. Earlier in life, Hester had vainly imagined that she herself might be the destined prophetess, but had long since recognized the impossibility that any mission of divine and mysterious truth should be confided to a woman stained with sin, bowed down with shame, or even burdened with a lifelong sorrow. The angel and apostle of the coming revelation must be a woman indeed, but lofty, pure and beautiful and wise, moreover, not through dusky grief, but the ethereal medium of joy, and showing how sacred love should make us happy by the truest test of a life successful to such an end. So said Hester Prynne, and glanced her sad eyes downward at the scarlet letter, and after many, many years a new grave was delved near an old and sunken one in that burial ground beside which King's Chapel has since been built. It was near that old and sunken grave, yet with a space between, as if the dust of the two sleepers had no right to mingle. Yet one tombstone served for both. All around there were monuments carved with armorial bearings, and on this simple slab of slate, as the curious investigator may still discern and perplex himself with the purport, there appeared the semblance of an engraved escutcheon. It bore a device, a herald's wording of which may serve for a motto and brief description of our now-concluded legend. So somber is it, and relieved only by one ever-glowing point of light, gloomier than the shadow. On a field, sable. The letter A. Gules. Thank you for downloading loudlit.org's production of The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Performed by Mary Woods. This production was made possible by the generous support of Gordon W. Draper, Lois and Will Yates, Teresa Mahoney, and Todd Fedor. MP3 downloads of The Scarlet Letter made possible by donations to loudlit.org. Thank you.